This is the third week in a four-part series that we're doing on hearing the voice of God. As a church and as individuals, uh, we desire intimacy with God. We're not satisfied with simply going through religious rituals, with showing up on Sunday and doing our thing. What we really want is for our lives more and more to be in tune with what we saw last week from Elizabeth Libert when she talked about becoming intentionally aware of how God is present, active, and calling us as individuals and communities so that we can respond with increasingly greater faithfulness. We, we want our awareness of God to go beyond Sundays from 1130 to 1 and to start penetrating the rest of the week because God is with us all the time. It's our awareness of it that is low, not his presence that is missing. So we're taking these four weeks to think through how God speaks to us. Dan opened the series a couple of weeks ago with the foundation of hearing God's voice, that is, the scriptures themselves. Last week, I I talked about this process of discernment that uh, Leibert is actually defining for us in that quote on the screen. It's not that we have to call God's presence down to us, but it is that we need to recognize that he is here, that he is here in the midst of our perplexities. And Jesus, in the midst of those perplexities, is transforming us. He's transforming the way that we see our circumstances. He's transforming the way we see the scriptures, and he's transforming the way we see ourselves. He is present and active, even if we don't always see it. Now, this week we want to begin moving towards the how-to. As you can see this week, I'm talking about solitude about aloneness, about spending time by yourself with God. So what we're doing right now is we're spending time with others with God. And Dan's actually going to talk about that next week in his message on community, what it's like to hear God's voice with other believers. But this week he's asked me to speak on what it's like to hear God's voice in solitude. It's an important way by which we come to hear the voice of God, as is underscored in the passage that Tibor just read for us. Maybe it would have been helpful for me to give a little bit of context before he read it, but I'll offer it now, and I think you'll still see just how startling those few verses really are. Mark, of course, is one of the four Gospels. To be more specific, Mark is one of three synoptic Gospels. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll notice that three of the Gospels sound very similar to one another. These three up on the screen, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is kind of the outlier. John is the one who kind of sees Jesus' life from a different perspective. He writes much later on. He lived a lot longer than the other disciples. And he wrote later in his life, recollecting Jesus' life. And he wrote for a specific purpose. All are faithful witnesses to Jesus. But these three, scholars often call synoptic. Optic, from that word optical, right? Eyes, seeing. Syn, that prefix that means together, like symphony. The sound is together. The synoptic gospels. Here are three gospels that are seeing Jesus' life together. And while there's a lot of overlap among those three, There is at the same time a specific thing that each one is trying to communicate as they're seeing the life of Jesus. Mark's is the shortest of the four Gospels, 
And he is writing largely to a Roman audience. He's writing to Roman Christians. And he is particularly interested in displaying Jesus, the Son of God, as the servant. Matthew is more likely writing to a Jewish audience. Luke is writing to more of a Greek audience. And they have different emphases in Jesus' life. But Mark is the one who really emphasizes Jesus' servitude. That he is the true servant of the Lord. And friends, this would have blown the Romans' minds. And think about the Roman Empire. Where do servants fit in the hierarchy in the Roman Empire? Way at the bottom. I mean, servant is even a little bit of a sanitized term here. He's talking about slavery. And yet, Mark depicts Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is, in fact, the servant of all. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And one of the ways that he depicts Jesus, one of the ways that he gets this emphasis through in his gospel, if you read it, I mean, you can sit down and read the gospel of Mark this afternoon. It'll take you about an hour and 15 minutes. It's not long. If you read through it, there's a word that repeats over and over and over. It's the word immediately. Immediately, Jesus did this. Immediately, Jesus did that. Immediately, Jesus went here. Immediately, Jesus went there. Over, more than any of the other Gospels. The shortest Gospel has the word immediately more than any of the others. Why? Because Mark is trying to communicate that Jesus is a servant. And when it's time to serve, he goes and serves, and he doesn't waste his time. So you're not allowed to do that when you're a servant. Now that's the backdrop. That's the context that I say makes this particular text we're looking at today so startling. Because you have Mark presenting Jesus as this ultimate servant who is running around and getting things done. And yet, in spite of this fact, it is Mark who draws out this facet of Jesus' life. That he, busy as he was, made time to be alone with God. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now we know from other parts of the Gospel of Mark and also from Matthew and Luke that this was not a one-time thing. This was his habit. This was his regular practice. In fact, if you were to go on reading in Mark 1, the very next story is the one where Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And his fame is growing more and more and more. You know, it's like he tells that one person, don't say anything, but ten people find out. So they will come to Jesus and they all want to be healed. They get healed and they go out. And now there's a hundred people who want to be healed. I mean, it's that kind of exponential growth that's going on in the early stages of Jesus' ministry. And in that Mark records in verse 45, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he stayed out in those lonely places. See, it was his habit. It was his way of life. Luke, talking about the same story, makes it even more clear. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, lonely places, and prayed. It was his custom to be alone with God. It was his custom to pray. It was his custom to cultivate solitude. So the importance of solitude in one's relationship with God is underscored in the very life of Jesus. 
And really throughout the scriptures, God's people seek solitude in order to put themselves in position to hear God's voice. That's the purpose of solitude. I want to be alone so that I might hear God's voice. Now, this is not to say that the only way God can speak to you is when you're alone. I mean, there are plenty of times in the scriptures when someone is with other people and the word of the Lord comes to them in the midst of other people. Ezekiel comes to mind. He's sitting with a bunch of exiles and the word of the Lord came to me and I gave it. Okay, It's not to say the only time God ever speaks to us is when we are, are alone. And that's what next week's sermon is all about. But that notwithstanding, throughout the scriptures, God's people cultivate solitude so they can put themselves in a position to hear God's voice. You find Adam in the garden, alone, perhaps in the most uh, unusual way, like genuinely alone. There's nobody else. And yet there he is with God, hearing God's voice. You find Abraham when three people come to him. And he shares a meal, and two carry on to go check on Lot, and one remains. And Abraham identifies him as the Lord, and in solitude, he begins to intercede for the city of Sodom. You find Moses spending 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, hearing the voice of God, going without food or drink. You find David in 2 Samuel 7, when God comes to him with this great promise that he's going to build him a house build him a line. You find David receiving God's word and then going and, the scripture says, sitting before the Lord. And he composes this beautiful psalm prayer to God. And then in the New Testament, you find Peter, the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10, waiting for lunch, literally. He's on a rooftop waiting for lunch. He was hungry. So he decided, well, I'll go spend some time alone with God. And he falls into a trance, and it's in that vision that he realizes that the gospel is not just for Jewish people, but for all people. See, God's people seek solitude so they can put themselves in a position to hear God's voice. Now, last week's sermon was a bit more theoretical. This week's is a little more how-to. How do we begin to cultivate solitude in such a way that we're actually hearing the voice of God? So let me start with this. In order for us to cultivate solitude, we need to identify what is keeping us from cultivating solitude. Now that might seem a little counterintuitive, but I think it's the right place for us to start. Because my, my guess is, and this is a guess, I, I, many of you are followers of Jesus. Some of you are not, and we're so glad that you're here that this church is for all people, and we want you to be here and ask hard questions and poke around with what it is that we teach and believe and all of that. We want you here. We're so glad and we're honored by your presence. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, I doubt that there's anyone in here who would say, no, I don't think it's important to spend time alone with God. Just, nah, not for us. I don't think any follower of Jesus would say that. Nor do I think any of you, I could be wrong on this one, could be wrong on either of them, could be wrong on the whole thing. Uh, but I, I don't think any of you would say, I'm super satisfied with my solitude with God. Like every day it's like fire just came down from heaven and consumed everything around me and I'm like so geared up for the day. 
It's a hunch, right? At least I'm speaking out of my own experience. We all know that solitude with God is a good thing, and we've all attempted solitude with God with mixed results. So that's where I, 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 what I want to start with is kind of below the surface of the actual activity and say, well, what is keeping us from cultivating solitude? Let me throw out a few things from my own experience that maybe resonate with yours. One possible hindrance is busyness, right? And we have a lot to do. It's almost cliche to say this in our age. It seems like every other week a book is published whose subtitle is Something in the Age of Distraction, right? Uh, it, it's almost cliche to mention busyness, but I mean, let's be real. Do you know how many hours I work? Do you know how long my commute is? Do you know how small my apartment is? Do you know how many people live in my small apartment with me? I would like just aloneness, much less aloneness with God, right? And solitude is a luxury. And if this truly is keeping you from cultivating solitude, let me encourage you when I say the place to begin is to identify what is keeping you from solitude with God. And I mean, be as specific in naming it as possible. Don't just leave it in the realm of busyness, but be more specific. I mean, there's space in the program that you received on your way in. Jot it down. Like, it is my work schedule that keeps me from solitude with God. I'm working... 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week, I can barely keep up with any part of my life. Or maybe it's, my, my roommates are super noisy. They're just always in front of me, and I cannot pull away from them. Whatever it is, be as specific as you can, because the more specific you can be in identifying what it is keeping you from solitude with God, the better chance you'll have of actually crafting a plan that will get around that hindrance. So be specific. Let me go a different direction. Here's another possible hindrance. Anger. A lot of times the reason we don't want to spend time alone with God is that we don't have very happy thoughts about God right now. And there is some very deep-seated anger about circumstances, about something that happened in our lives, something that we've had to endure. That if we were to enter into the presence of God, the first words of our, out of our mouths would be, where were you when? Right? Maybe he did not come through for you. He's disappointed you, and you're angry with him about it. See, for some of us, busyness is the thing that keeps us away from the presence of God. But for others, but for others, I'm concerned that some of you would say busyness keeps me from the presence of God. But as you dug just a little bit, what's really keeping you from the presence of God is you're angry with God. And you're using busyness as a cover for it. Like, I just don't have time. Because you know that once you actually sat down in his presence, I mean, the stuff that you would want to say to him, you're thinking to yourself, a Christian should not say that to God. I've heard enough sermons to know that that's not an appropriate way to talk to God. And I would say to you, have you ever read the Psalms? The Psalms are gut-wrenchingly honest. 
in terms of bringing up before God uncomfortable experience. That's a really nice way of putting hardship, abuse, trauma. You may have some things to say that maybe you think you ought not to say, so it's easier just to distract yourself with another game of Candy Crush Soda rather than spend time in God's presence, right? <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> no, I was not telling on you. I, I see you're taking notes. <laughs> she said I'm not playing. <laughs> Sorry. Which, which leads me to the third hindrance, shame, right? <laughs> I was talking to somebody a week ago who said that the challenge for me when it comes to cultivating solitude with God is basically I feel like being alone with God is sort of like getting called to the principal's office. It's like, oh yeah. The principal's office is not a place of delight. <laughs> it's a place of judgment and condemnation and shame. See, friends, this is why I start here before offering practical solutions. I'm starting here because I want you to realize that whether it's one of these three hindrances or something else entirely, where that leaves you is not just alone with God, but actually just alone. Alone with your anger, alone with your shame, alone, even though there's a whole bunch of activity going on around you. You're just alone. For all your social media time talking with virtual friends, you're still alone with your phone. For all your anger at God, you're alone in your wrath. For all your shame, you're hiding in the bushes alone. You're not alone with God. You actually are cultivating solitude, but the solitude you're cultivating is crippling your soul. And Jesus is inviting you out. He's inviting you out of the shadows because, friends, Jesus was the one who not only exemplified Solitude at the beginning of his life to show us what it's like to be alone with God. But Jesus was the one who at the end of his ministry went through absolute abandonment by God. He truly was alone so that we don't have to be alone. He was the one who on the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsaken by God. Who can understand this? And he did that so that we might never have to go through that ultimate disgrace of abandonment by God. The aloneness you're cultivating because of busyness or anger or shame or anything else is crippling you. And Jesus, through the gospel, is saying, look, I've already experienced that for you. And by my life and my death and my resurrection, I have made the presence of God not the principal's office, but I've made it the safe place. I've made it your father's house. I, I've made sure it's the Oval Office of, of the universe, but I've made you, John F. Kennedy Jr., playing in the resolute desk while dad sits at the desk and works. So even if you're legitimately busy, you do not need to feel pressure to create time you truly don't have. The gospel says you're free. You are free indeed. And if you're angry with God for what he has done in your life, the gospel has made the presence of God a safe place for you to express your anger. In fact, it is the only place to healing for those wounds is actually to bring it to God. Maybe in the context of a professional counselor, therapist, maybe likely in the context of good friends who will carry that with you. But it's the only way to be healed.
And if you feel shame for something you've done or something you should have done but didn't do, the gospel says you're forgiven in the name of Jesus. See, friends, the gospel brings you close. And because of the gospel, whatever else you bring into the presence of God, nothing in there has the power to eject you. Because Jesus has already gone through the abandonment for you. And his spirit is in you. That's why, friends, it's so important to identify what it is that keeps us away and name it as specifically as possible because only then can you take the light of Jesus, the light of his gospel, what he's done for us, and shine it on it to expose it for what it really is. Okay, so that's where you start. Now, let's assume that you're identifying what keeps you away. And I do say that in present tense, that you are identifying what keeps you away. Because the thing that I found in my heart keeping me away from the presence of God today, this morning, was different from yesterday morning. This stuff just keeps coming up. And it's like, here we go again. Let's keep identifying. What, what is that? Name it. Expose it. Let Jesus drive it away so that you can actually be alone with God. Okay. So, here you are, in the presence of God. Now what? Can I just throw out seven suggestions for cultivating solitude so that you hear the presence of God? And I'll take through these fairly quickly. Most of them are probably familiar to you. So if they are, take them as reminders. Take them as reminders. Okay? Let's start here. I would encourage you to establish a flexible routine. Establish a flexible routine. Okay. Some, uh, the, the power of a routine is enormous. You ever watch baseball players when they go up to bat? I mean, they, they, they do their gloves a certain way. They tap their, their bat against their shoes a certain, like, they have this routine. And, and if you talk to a pitcher about game day, their whole, the day that a starting pitcher pitches, the whole day is laid out from the time they wake up so what they eat and when they eat and when they get a massage and when they put on the everything is laid out because the routine helps just get them in the right mindset. And there's not one right routine. There's routines that we establish that work for us. So for me, I'm a morning person. I like to wake up early before anyone else is up and have quiet time before I talk to anybody else. I think that's probably better for everybody else too. <laughs> that that I've, I've had a chance to like pour out all my junk to God and so everyone else hopefully is a little bit more clear to other. But that's me. Other people it's like, man, my brain's not even working until my third cup of coffee. Okay? I get that. Okay? But what works for you? And it might not be a specific time and place. It might be more like, you know what works for me? The time that I am most likely... To, to actually hear God's voice is actually on the morning commute. Because I've got my earbuds in, I'm on a train. Yes, there's a lot of people, but generally, like, that's a space where I can just sort of be alone with my thoughts. But establish a routine with it. And I say, keep it flexible. Keep it flexible. God doesn't love you more for sticking to your routine, and he doesn't hate you if you miss a day. Okay? But find a routine that works for you and try to stick to it. The more routine you can make it, the better of a chance you actually have of getting there, rather than it being this kind of sporadic thing. Second, once you're there, quiet yourself. Quiet yourself. 
I'm learning to take literally the verse in Psalm 46. God says, be still and know that I am God. Like, literally, stop fidgeting. I'll notice myself. Like, I'll be reading a psalm or getting ready to pray, and, like, I'm sitting and my legs are crossed and my right foot is bouncing up and down like this. And, and what's going on is that my mind is, like, actually thinking about other things when I'm reading this, and it's all that activity is, like, making my foot bounce up and down. It's like, whoa, 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 let's just, let's breathe. Let's breathe. Be still. Let's quiet ourselves. Like, literal solitude, literal stillness. Believe it or not, you can't actually do that on a train. You can't actually stand there, hold the strap, hold the bar, close your eyes, breathe slowly, think about Jesus. It's possible. But I would encourage you just to quiet yourself. Give, give yourself, and I, and I know some people who will you know, go to this application, I don't, it's not in the Bible, but like even if they're called to pray in a group setting, they won't just like launch right into our Father in Heaven, but they'll actually like stop for like an awkward length of time. But what they're doing for themselves is they're just quieting their minds, quieting their hearts, and consciously becoming aware that God is present and He isn't listening. So I encourage you to quiet yourself. This is one reason, again, for me, because I'm old, I, I prefer paper to an app. There are some great apps. I, I use the Daily Prayer app for quite a while. I would highly recommend it if, if you're going to do like a commute, electronic sort of a thing. But my problem with the phone is I get distracted. Like a notification comes in, and it's like squirrel, right? Like, oh, let me let me go check this out, right? Um, so, like for me, I could put tech away and just go paper, even if it's for just a little bit of time. It helps me quiet myself down. Okay, third, and I'll get faster. Trust me. Third, read your Bible to Jesus. Read your Bible to Jesus. It's not Bible study or Sunday school lesson prep or even a Bible reading plan. But take time to read your Bible and read your Bible until you find Jesus. And I'm not saying you have to read in the Gospels. The whole Bible speaks of Jesus. John Stott says it this way, Scripture testifies to Christ in order to evoke faith in Christ, in order to be, bring life to the believer. If that's true, he concludes, then the conclusion is simple. Wherever, whenever we read the Bible, we must look for Christ, and we must go on looking until we see and so believe. I mean, I'm reading in Second Samuel right now. When I'm reading about David, my first thought is, I'm reading about David and I'm thinking about me. Okay, this isn't ultimately about me. Back up. All right, now I'm reading about David, thinking about David. All right, we're getting closer. All right. But, I mean, I just came through the harrowing chapters 11 and 12, and this morning was Amnon and Tamar, and I'm like, at the end of a story like that, just feeling like, I just don't know what to do. But this, I'm going to read this Bible, read these stories, so I find Jesus here. Where is Jesus breaking through, even in the midst of dark passages? That brings us to number four. Pour out your heart to God. I could have just said pray, but I want to be a little more specific. 
whatever you find in your heart in that quiet place, just start naming it. Even if it feels really like half thoughts, half sentences, fragments, like just start, pour out your heart to him, the psalmist implores us. Whatever you identified back at the beginning of this exercise that was keeping you from God's presence, put it out there. He already knows about your anger with him. And, and, and he's not sitting there like, oh, what am I going to do if they say that word? He's not. Right? Like he already knows what's in our hearts. And it's safe for you, because of Jesus, to take this stuff that's burdening and crippling you, bring it out. Pour it out before God. This is where I might suggest praying the Psalms. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian from the mid-20th century who died at the hands of the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a little, like, 60-page booklet on how to pray the Psalms. That's just golden. You probably can download it for free as a PDF somewhere. But Bonhoeffer on the Psalms is just gold. Number five, leave space for the Spirit. Leave space for the Spirit. And you notice here, this is intentional, Spending time alone with the triune God. I'm reading the Bible to Jesus. I'm pouring my heart out to God. And I'm leaving space for the Spirit. And this, this is what I mean by that. If, if, if you can say, all right, these are the ten minutes I'm going to cultivate solitude with God. Right? I've got ten minutes I can do it. My suggestion is, don't say, okay, what Bible reading plan can I find that will let me read the Bible for ten minutes? Okay. What I would suggest you do is if you have 10 minutes, read the Bible for three minutes. And then think about it for seven. Because you know what happens when I start thinking about the Bible in a thing like this? I think about what I read for about 40 seconds. And then I start thinking about something else. And then about a minute and a half later, I'm like, hey, wait a second, what was I doing? Oh, that's right, I was thinking about this. And then I come back, and then I get like another 30 seconds of thinking about this, and then I'm off over this way, right? I had one mentor who actually used to keep a pad of paper with him, so that when he had those tangent thoughts, he would just jot those down, because he's like, I need to think about those, just not right now. And that would help him refocus. But leave space for the Spirit to bring that word to you. Like, what is it that he is saying to you in this passage? Number six, if it's possible, spend a day with God every once in a while. And I would encourage you, especially if like your work week is crazy Monday to Friday, and, and you just don't have a lot of space for solitude, or even Monday to Saturday, I would encourage you to, to get into a habit that says, you know, for six days a week, I'm going to try to spend 10 minutes alone with God. But then on that one off day, I, I, want, to do, I want to go a little deeper. I want to spend a little bit more time sitting there with God. But then one step beyond that would be to say, you know what? I've got a Saturday coming up. There's nothing scheduled. I'm, I'm going to just go somewhere. I'm going to go find a quiet spot in a park and just go be with Jesus. I'm going to take my Bible. I'm going to take a songbook. And maybe I'll schedule a phone call with a friend and say, hey, at two o'clock on this Saturday, could I call you and we spend an hour together just praying about whatever we need to pray about? But go spend the day with God. 
it's great. I mean, I've, I've done this where like even twice a year I try to go away. Now, I'm a pastor, so that, that there's part of a pastoral thing there as well. But if you can figure out a way to cultivate that kind of like five hours to be with God, it can be so enriching. For It's sort of like going into a greenhouse for a little while before going back out into the world. And finally, I encourage you to give thanks for his presence. Even if you don't feel him or sense him, even if you don't have that aha moment, still give thanks because he is there. And give thanks that he will be with you throughout the coming hours. And ask him for grace that you might be increasingly aware of his presence. Now, let me close with this, and I'm done. Why? Why should we cultivate solitude? Maybe so God will answer our prayers. Maybe so you might think, well, you know, I want God to think well of me. No. But we're, what we're working towards is this. We cultivate solitude just so that we can be in the presence of God. God's presence is its own reward. The joy and life and strength and hope we find there is its own reward. There is nothing higher or greater that we're aiming at through this. It's just to be one with God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thanks for your love for us that invites us into your presence. And we pray that you would grant grace to us that we might respond to your loving invitation with joy and with hope. Make your presence this greatest life for us.